This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Meryl. Meryl exists to give you all you really need to discover the simple yet profound power of the trail. They believe the trail is for everybody and everybody. Merrill's goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products that over-deliver on performance, versatility, and durability. Because when you've got air in your lungs and good shoes on your feet, you've got everything you need. I've been getting back into running. It's slow going, um, but I'm really enjoying running over the forest beds in New Hampshire and also just running around my neighborhood. My new pair, the Merrill Women's Antora Trail Runners, are super comfortable and they're lightweight, but they still have a nice stable traction that works well for me and my high arches. I really enjoy the freedom they give me to explore the winding paths near my home. Stay tuned for more stories with Merrill this summer, and to learn more in the meantime, visit Merrill.com. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. I think just the idea of vibrant, rich, valuable, all of the things that we see in the media are negative. You know, they're hostile, wasteland, violent, illegal. People have that in their heads. But when you know it in reality, when you either see it for yourself or you see a firsthand account of it, you see see it for what it is. It's it's vibrant. It's rich. It's it's beautiful and it's important. And that's from a human and a wild perspective. This is conservation photographer, writer, and filmmaker Krista Schleier. That vibrant, rich place she's describing is the almost 2,000-mile border between the U.S. and Mexico. Raising awareness for its biodiversity has become an integral part of Krista's life's work and is the focus of a new documentary film she directed called I, Mariposa. These days, we're hearing a lot about the border wall in the news, but we don't often talk about the wildlife and landscape that its construction impacts. This episode is about Krista's work as a conservation journalist and the stories she's telling along the border. I do want to emphasize that while there's a lot of talk about flora and fauna in this episode, it's not to discount the very human elements of the U.S.-Mexico border. It's simply to highlight what exists alongside them. Let's start by getting to know Krista. I grew up in, let's see, kind of all over a little bit. I was born in Kansas in a little small town called Seneca and spent a lot of my youth in the Midwest. I went to school through high school in Indiana, a little bit of time in Missouri, and then my mom moved out to Arizona when I went into college. So I kind of had Arizona as a home base pretty much ever since high school. Krista took what she calls a circuitous route to political journalism, but it was all guided by her interests. A semester abroad to India in college ignited a travel bug, so for graduate school, she started an East Asian studies program, but ended up derailed by a motorcycle accident. Once she recovered, Krista shifted her focus to journalism, which, looking back, makes a lot of sense. I've always been drawn to writing and storytelling and photography, and also drawn to public affairs and policy. And so it seemed like it seemed like a pretty good route for me and it, journalism is so interesting depending on what what sort of field you go into because it gives you the ability to sort of spend your life learning about things and then teaching other people about what you've learned. And so it was a really good fit for me. In in certain ways do you still 
consider yourself a journalist then? Because it sounds like a lot <laughs> like what you do today, too. Yeah, I definitely do. You know, I mean, I think I, I moved away from kind of strict journalism about a decade or so ago. But I still at heart, you know, that's really I think what really appeals to me about journalism is this attempt to sort of strive for truth and fact you know, that's tricky. That's, that's a tricky thing that, that the journalism profession, I think, struggles with all the time. But for me, it's still the foundation of what I do because, because I want to pe- give people factual information. And I could be passionate about it, but I want it to be factual. Um, and I think a lot of times if you do that, then you earn people's trust. You know, I think that's what it's all about. Krista worked for a few years as a political reporter, but ultimately found that the work she was doing wasn't lining up with her values. I had been spending time specifically telling political stories, so interviewing candidates for presidential office and um, doing stories about political districts and, and voting. I worked for a congressional quarterly for a while and then for the Center for Responsive Politics, and I just absolutely felt that this kind of fundamental desire for truth telling and and for kind of living in a world where people are upfront and don't have hidden agendas that doing political reporting was just not very conducive to to doing that, you know. So so you ended up moving away from that. I did. I ended up moving away from it in Let's see, 1999, my um, partner um, was diagnosed with cancer, and I, I continued to work um, as a as a journalist sort of through his illness. But you know, as the treatment wore on and he got sicker and sicker, um, I just found myself sort of continually feeling like I was wasting time that I could be spending with him by telling these stories of people that weren't even telling the truth and they were just sort of playing the games that politicians play. And, and so I, you know, I think I really soured on that having this job that I had to go to every day when I really just wanted to be with him. So he died that year. And after that, yeah, I just didn't want to go back to it. So I spent a year traveling and just kind of figuring out kind of what to do next and didn't totally abandon journalism by any means, but decided to make a shift about what what side of storytelling um, I wanted to be involved in and, and what, what aspects of the world that I wanted to be telling stories about. Um, and that's when I went into environmental journalism and really sort of conservation photography and writing. Krista spent that year on a road trip around the U.S., visiting national parks and other natural places. It's one of those stories you'd hear on our sister podcast, Women on the Road. You can read about it in Krista's book, Almost Anywhere, which I'll link in the show notes. All along, she was taking photos. You know, since I first picked up a camera, I've had this kind of like real connection to photography. And so in the, you know, when I was growing up long ago, but when I went on that trip, I went with my best friend, who is now my partner, my life partner, and um, we took a, a four by five, one of those old four by five cameras um, that are these huge deals with film, and we took a bunch of other cameras with us too. But that was sort of the main thing was to every day, twice a day at sunrise and sunset, to be somewhere 
that was beautiful, some national park or national forest, and take a photograph with that 4 by 5 camera. And so all throughout that year, um, I was visiting all these really wonderful places, seeing wildlife, and just kind of meditating on this, um, this process of trying to capture what I was seeing. And so, yeah, that was, that was really the beginning of it. And after that I was, you know, I, I threw away all of these voices in my head that said, oh, you can't make a living doing that. And, and I just, you know, went for it and, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's been hard, but it's been great. It was a good choice. You mentioned that one of your thoughts and one of like a lot of people's thoughts and like getting started in um, environmental journalism and, and conservation photography is like, how do you make a living? What was it like in the early 2000s, like getting started and pursuing it as a career? Oh, so hard. It was so hard. You know, I had a, well, there was a career fair when I got out of journalism school, my master's degree, there's a career fair. And I was going to see different professional journalists. And, and one of those was a photojournalist. I went in to see him and I explained, you know, I really, really want to be a photojournalist. And, you know, what can you tell me about how you do that? And he, he said to me, he said, you know what, you're not going to make it. Just, it's too hard. Just go after the writing thing. It's going to be, that's a better path. I believed him at the time. So this is before, that's when I went into political journalism. And, you know, after that, this year on the road, I kind of looked back at that, that conversation and how much I had put weight into this, this man's, you know, opinion of what I should be doing and what I could, what I could make it at and what I couldn't. I just thought, that's crazy. Why did I listen to him? And so I started this, you know, I started this path and I first went part time as a freelancer and I was the rest of the time I was working as a photo editor for Defenders of Wildlife. So I had a little bit of income coming in and that was great. But it also made it so that I couldn't spend the time that I had really needed to, to be able to become successful as a freelancer. And so luckily I was laid off by defenders um, when they downsized and was kind of forced to look at, well, if I really want to succeed at this, um, there's some things that I'm going to have to do that I, that I don't like to do, but I'm going to have to do. And I just forced myself to do them. And specifically I'm talking about going and networking and going to conferences specifically and meeting people and talking to people. And, and when I talk to people that are younger than me today and they ask me, how do I do this? That's one of the first things that I say is that you need to get connected to a community of people that are doing this because that's the best way to get to become successful. And I learned that through experience because I, I'm really an introvert myself. So it was just, like the worst thing I could possibly think of to go to a conference and sit down at a table and say, hi, my name is Krista. I really want to do this, but I forced myself to do it. And, you know, I would meet one person and the next and the next. And eventually I had, you know, somebody saying, Hey, you should talk to this person because they have this great story to tell. And I bet this organization would want to hear that story. And, you know, so little by little, I just kind of pieced together how to do it. But, you know, in the meantime, I was cleaning houses to make money or taking up odd jobs to be able to get by. So it was never easy and it still isn't easy, but little by little it builds and you, you know, you know how it is. You can, you can make anything work if you, if you work at it hard enough. 
You know, it's funny. I think, um, and this is partially my bias, I, I enjoy photography and I've always been partial to kind of like backing up and like seeing like the big picture or sometimes getting up close to like more natural elements. Um, I've never pursued wildlife photography. What draws you to that specifically? And I know you do other types of photography as well and it's all beautiful, but what draws you to wildlife? Yeah, it is interesting how some people are drawn to one and some people to the other. I love landscapes, but I've always felt a little perplexed about composition related to, to landscapes. But wildlife, for whatever reason, I I could just sit there for hours and hours and watch, you know, a single bird or fox or beetle or whatever and just feel like there was something so cathartic about kind of putting myself into their life and imagining the life that they were living and the struggles that they were facing and just kind of thinking about what's going through their minds. I think there's just, you know, I have just some sort of natural connection to, to animals. I think the more that I learned about what's happening worldwide in terms of just loss and biodiversity and habitat and just the incredible struggles that so many species are facing, I became more and more attached to, to trying to tell those stories. We'll hear more about these stories after this. Houseplants help keep you connected to nature, but it can be tough to know how to get started. That's where Rooted comes in. Rooted is nature delivered. They're a modern-day plant brand that makes it easy to fill your home with beautiful plants and keep them flourishing. I talked to Olivia, a member of the Rooted team, about how it all works. Rooted provides customers with happy, healthy, and affordable plants. And we also offer fun and fresh content to guide you on your journey of plant parenthood. So we make it super easy and simple for you just because it can be a very daunting process. Olivia's right. My experience with Rooted was super easy. I took a quiz that took into account my lifestyle and plant experience, and they recommended what plants would work well for me, especially for someone who isn't always home. They also have a YouTube channel with instructional videos, so I'm equipped with all the knowledge I need to keep my plants healthy and happy. Olivia shared another way Rooted is unique. We partner directly with local nurseries to offer a huge variety of plants online, and we ship them directly from these nurseries straight to your door. And this ensures quicker and healthier plant delivery. And also by working directly with the growers and cutting out any intermediaries, growers get paid more for all their hard work and you get plants for less. So what for you and for others are the benefits of having plants in your home? Well, physically, Plants clean indoor air by absorbing toxins, increasing humidity, and producing oxygen. So it has tremendous air purifying benefits for sure. At the same time, they also add life to any space by just making it look better, also offering privacy if desired. And then mentally, studies have shown that they boost your mood, productivity, concentration, and creativity. So ultimately, they are extremely therapeutic. I love that because... For so many people, it's hard to find that time to kind of imbue nature into your everyday life. So to have that at home is is such a calming, um, but also invigorating, like you said, from a creative standpoint, um, presence in your life. Exactly. Bring nature in. 
Learn more by heading to rooted.nyc slash explore and use the code explore for 15% off your order. That's R-O-O-T-E D dot N-Y-C slash explore and use code explore for 15% off your order. We're back. Krista had found her calling as a nature photographer, but she hadn't found her passion yet. Her work at Defenders of Wildlife got her thinking about wildlife on the U.S.-Mexico border, but it wasn't until a few years later that a story opportunity brought the issue into focus for Krista. I was at a conference and I met a photographer that I had had followed for a long time and really respected his work, and he suggested that I talk to this woman who was a pilot, and she was taking a scientist from Mexico on regular trips to look for a herd of bison. That was a transboundary herd of bison in New Mexico and Chihuahua. And so I, you know, I started this process of trying to get a story assignment, which I ultimately did through Wildlife Conservation Society and their magazine, Wildlife Conservation. So I was down in Mexico for this story. And I went up into a plane with the scientist from Mexico, whose name was Rurik List, we were looking for the bison, you know, in this region where they had been known to roam. And we happened to spot them just as they were crossing what was the U.S.-Mexico border at the time, which was the barbed wire fence that they had broken down. So it was a, probably a three-string barbed wire fence, and they had broken it down to two strings. But we saw them right as they were doing this from the air. It was a really important moment for me because... I don't know why, like you can kind of imagine that a, that a border wall would be bad for wildlife, but something about seeing this species, which this herd was one of five free-ranging herds left in North America at the time, so it was a really important herd, and it was a small herd, so there was some concern about whether it was going to survive. And to see these creatures jumping over this fence to cross a border, it just, something in it kind of sparked in me and it, it meant something and it hadn't, hadn't really meant before. And when we got back down on the ground, Rurik and I went to the landowners on both sides of the border. They were both ranchers and we asked them if what they knew about the bison. And the rancher on the southern side of the border in Chihuahua, Mexico said, they come to my land every day to visit a pond. It's one of the only year-round water resources anywhere around here. So it was critical, critical resource. Then on the north side of the border, uh, the rancher there said that he saw the bison almost every day on a particular patch of grass on his land uh, called Blue Grandma. And it was a really nutritious type of grass. Uh, so the bison would come regularly to go to that. You know, after these two conversations and what I had seen, it became really clear that this species, food and water resources, were split by this border. And it was right when, right after the Secure Fence Act was passed, when the Bush administration was starting to build about 700 miles of enhanced border barrier, just suddenly just clicked, like, this is going to be disastrous, not only for the bison, but for the thousands of species that live along this border. And nobody had been talking about that. I mean, Defenders was trying to, to raise awareness about it, and Sierra Club was, but in the mainstream media, there was no attention being paid to this. 
I suppose I'd been looking for a while at that point for something that I considered a calling because the people that I had met at some of these conferences, people I really admired, it wasn't just a job to them. They they had something that they believed in and they were passionate about and and they were telling a story that they knew that nobody else was telling and that it and then it mattered to the world. Um, so I just thought, yeah, this is this is it for me. This is you know, this is that story. Um, I just started trying to think of everything that I could possibly do to, to raise awareness about the issue. Why why do you think you and a lot of people so you said that before you saw this visually it wasn't something that you really thought about like why do you think there's such a remove for people between how a border would affect wildlife well i think that part of it is just natural to us as creatures as as people but as creatures we we don't necessarily think about something unless it's a part of our daily lives and the border for so many people is so removed and there are kind of perceptions in popular culture and in the media about what this place is you know this the the sort of like icon the desert icon but this like kind of rough and wasted space like it doesn't have you don't get the idea that there are a lot of that there's richness that there are animals living there that there you know that there is something of value to be to be concerned about so i think part of it is just natural but there's this other part of it that i think has been fabricated by politicians that that have an agenda on the border and you know we we, we saw the same thing happen in the arctic national wildlife refuge early on when um, people who wanted to do oil exploration started to push for this in Congress, the opening up of this refuge, they and their allies in Congress made the case that this is just a frozen wasteland. It doesn't matter what happens here. And so that was kind of the perception that people had in their minds when people started to say, wait, wait, this is, this is really bad from an environmental and conservation standpoint. The people who cared about that had to then show people that this perception that had been made about this place was absolutely wrong, you know, that it was incredibly biodiverse and it was incredibly important to all of these species. And I think it's the same, it's the same story on the border that there was this misperception and it was manipulated by people who had ulterior motives. That has happened so much on the border. So I think then the challenge became trying to show people what's really there Uh, to get them to care about it, and to take some sort of action. And to also illustrate that there's this wildlife element, and then there's also a very human element to to the border as well. It's It's not a wasteland. It's wildlife and human beings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just, I think just the idea of vibrant, rich, valuable, you know, these all of the things that we see in the media are negative. You know, they're hostile, wasteland, violent, illegal. People have that in their heads. But when you know it in reality, when you either see it for yourself or you see a firsthand account of it, you see see it for what it is. It's it's vibrant. It's rich. It's, it's beautiful. 
and it's important. And that's from a human and a wild perspective. I started out, I think with my work anyway, I mean, I think I foundationally, I felt um, a connection and a concern for the human issues on the border all along. But my work was more about the wildlife and the ecosystems because I saw what a lack of understanding there was of that. But the more I did this project, the more personally I became acquainted with the human tragedy that's been unfolding there for the past 30 years. And that's become a lot more of my work over the years as I've done this project. We'll hear more about Chris's project after this. We all want our bras to fit better, and Third Love is dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. They've used data from real women to create bras with breast shape and size in mind. When I first bought one of their bras, I took the Fit Finder quiz. In just 60 seconds, actually before I bought the first bra, it was um, when I was just curious about the product, but then I bought the bra after. (laughs) I took the Fit Finder quiz, um, and in just 60 seconds, it was really fun to learn a bit more about the right bras for me and my breast shape. Third Love is super convenient. No trips to the mall or strip mall or... I don't know, wherever we're shopping these days. Super convenient. And because they have a perfect fit promise, every customer has 60 days, two months, to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. If you don't love it, you can return it for free, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. I love thinking that what doesn't work for you is a perfect fit for someone else. There's a life lesson there somewhere. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash explore now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash explore for 15% off today. We're back. For our purposes, when Krista talks about her work, she means the Borderlands Project, which has taken shape in different mediums. Continental Divide was a photography exhibit featuring wildlife, people, and the wall. It toured in 2009 and 2010 and featured photography from 13 conservation photographers who documented Borderlands flora, fauna, and cultures. Krista also published a book, Continental Divide, which tells the story of people and wildlife along the border. Now she's touring a new film, I, Mariposa, which we'll hear about more later. Krista's work emphasizes that the borderland landscape and the people and creatures within it are fluid. People move back and forth over the border as they have for thousands of years. Communities along the border are bicultural. Families live on either side. Bison were Krista's entry point in learning more about how wildlife is impacted by a physical border wall. But there are thousands of species and countless environmental implications. Here's Krista. Well, when I first started, I think I focused mostly on the kind of obvious impacts. You know, the bison. The bison wasn't going to be able to get to food or water. Um, The jaguar. Jaguars are critically endangered species in the United States. They They were hunted to pers- just persecuted mercilessly in the United States until um, they basically all but went extinct, as far as we know. And just in the past probably 20 years, um, we've had kind of mounting evidence that they maybe never left at all entirely, but they're starting to come back. And they're coming back because there's a, um, a stronghold for them 
in northern Sonora, Mexico. It's called the Northern Jaguar Preserve. That's the northernmost known mating population of, of jaguars. What happens is when those jaguars, when young male jaguars are in that population, the population gets to the point where they need to go strike out on their own to find new territory, um, or they start getting into squabbles with um, <laughs> squabbles, dangerous squabbles with other males. And so they strike out. And so increasingly what they're doing is they're striking out and going to this habitat in the United States and re uh, repopulating these areas that they were driven away from. And we know this is happening and we know that it is the, the most important thing for jaguar conservation in the United States. So habitat protection uh, laws that don't allow people to shoot jaguars but keeping these corridors open so that they can repopulate their historic grounds. You know, so that's a real iconic species that, that it's easy to say this species will almost certainly go extinct in the U S if we fill this wall and ocelots are like that as well. The smaller cat species and jaguarundis, which are almost extinct in the United States. So I kind of started with those and then learned more about, species like Sonoran pronghorn, which are an endangered pronghorn species that lives in the Sonoran Desert. Their population is kind of split by the border. And in the United States, it's, it's a smaller population that's very prone to disturbance. So when militarization rises, the species does not do well because they don't, they don't do well with a lot of disturbance. Uh, they also live in a place where if they can't get to a water hole, either because there's disturbance from border patrol or because there's some sort of structure between them and the waterhole, they're just going to die. And there's just no, there's no dispute about that. So they're in an extremely vulnerable situation. And there's a larger population on the Mexican side. So they, on our, on the U.S. side, they have a real problem with genetic bottlenecks if they can't get to a larger population with a higher uh, genetic diversity in Mexico. So, so I started thinking, you know, learning more about how uh, genetic health of a species is impacted by border barriers. And um, that's true for all species along the border, but it's especially problematic for those whose, whose numbers are low on either side of the border. And then, you know, I, I started looking more into other impacts that you might not think of right away, but are really problematic for wild species. Everything from border patrol going off-road in places like the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge and destroying the land so that the plants can't live and the wildlife can't um, depend on those plants for them to be able to live, to in South Texas, and this is a lot of what the film is about, where there's less than 5% of the native habitat left already. And this is one of the most unique environments in North America, really, because it's, it's smack dab in the middle of the meeting point of the temperate zone and the tropical zone. So you have all these species that live in, this, in the lower Rio Grande Valley that they don't coexist anywhere else in the world. Uh, all these northern species that this is the end of their southern extent of their range and all these southern species that it's the northern extent of their range so tremendous bird 
diversity. It's, it's one of the most important places for birds in North America because not only do you have the resident population that is this incredible mix of North and South, you also have, uh, it's, a, it's a major flyway um, for birds that are migrating between the tropics and the temperate zone. And there's less than 5% of the native habitat left. So most of it is on the border, uh, right along the river. And the border wall is being built, a lot of it, through wildlife refuges and nature preserves that were created specifically to try and protect that last 5%. All of this clearing of forest, basically scraping the habitat to the ground, is happening to be able to build this wall. So it's an incredible loss of, of habitats, incredible destruction of habitat for these really diverse populations and critically rare um, species. There were unexpected implications too. Another one that I think probably nobody thought of until it actually happened was what was going to happen when you put a wall in a national wildlife refuge in a floodplain it of course becomes a dam. So in South Texas, where it's built on National Wildlife Refuge property, when there are extended floods on the Rio Grande River, which happens not infrequently, uh, the water can build up and stay on the ground for months. And in, in 2010, there was an extended rainy period um, and a lot of tropical storm activity. And the Rio Grande was, was swollen for, for months at a time. And where the wall had been built on National Wildlife Refuge property, the land was flooded for that entire time. And so all of these species that can't climb trees and couldn't get over a wall, which was all terrestrial species, drowned in that water. Mm. And um, there were all these um, Texas tortoise carapaces uh, shells that were found after the floodwaters receded um, because they could not get out. And this is an imperiled Texas species. Fish and Wildlife Service had stated in a memo that they assumed that there were many, many more drownings, many more species that had similar rates of death to the Texas tortoise, but because they didn't have these durable shells as evidence afterwards, they were never found. So just the examples of the harm that this, this does to wildlife and to ecosystems goes on and on and on. And it is devastating. And you said that there were probably countless other species and animals that died through that flooding. And I remember in our initial conversation, you talked about that thousands of people have died in border crossings and there's no way of really knowing what that exact number is. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the official number, which is created by Border Patrol, is more than 8,000 people have died since the 1990s trying to cross this border. Most of those, they've either drowned in the Rio Grande or they've uh, died of dehydration um, or heat or hunger in the desert um, or of cold in the mountains. And it's, it, it's just unacceptable uh, I, I just shake my head. I don't understand how we could be a society that has allowed this to continue. And you see these politicians just like uh, 
you know, I see all of these politicians talking about how, how much this all has to stop and how we have to, you know, we have to stop putting desperate poor people through what we're putting them through on our border. And yet they're the same politicians who vote for the budgets that fund everything that's happening there. And, you know, so border patrol numbers are 8,000. There are researchers that have done research that shows the likelihood of it being 10 times that amount. So possibility of 80,000 people may have died trying to cross this border, but their remains were never found. And, you know, this is coming out of universities that have research programs that are trying to put a real figure on the loss of human life on this border. It's just astounding. On top of all that, there's also the carbon output of building a steel wall. Krista told me that one researcher estimated that if the wall is made out of steel, just the manufacturing of that steel would be like driving 366 billion miles in a car, which of course affects us all, as well as the flora and fauna around the world. Having followed politicians on both sides of the aisle for a decade, I can see that they don't see the border as a place with people, with wildlife, with these lives being lived. They see it as a chip on a bargaining table or a rope in a tug of war. And it has no real meaning to them. That's one of the hardest things to see. You know, that's been a struggle for the project all along is knowing that even if people who see the book or the film or the exhibit, even if even if those people, their response is, wow, I had no idea this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. Trying to get that message to lawmakers on Capitol Hill is just a whole nother ballgame. You know, I've sat in meetings with many, many members of Congress, their staff, hundreds of meetings. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard people don't care about wildlife. You know, what's the economic issue? Tell me what the economic issue is. And how many times I've tried to make the case that that people are dying trying to get across this border because of the prevention by deterrence policies that were set in motion under the Clinton administration it's like they're a different species. It's like they don't, none of that matters to them because they're calculating how many votes am I going to lose over this? And do people really care about this? You know, it's not about morality or ethics. It's about, am I going to win or lose the next election over this issue? That's hard. That is hard to take. Yeah. And how, how is that for you doing this work for the past, you know, at least 12 years? Like how, Does it make you want to work harder or does it make you feel defeated? At times, you know, both. I I go through cycles of feeling distraught and just so angry that I can't think. (laughs) And then then I have moments where I'm just like, no, gosh darn it, I'm this, we're going to do this. We are going to make this happen. And and I kind of look, I think the big thing is that I've learned over the years, I mean, I I would get really 
kind of immobilized by losses earlier in the project. You know, when President Obama was elected, you know, I had been trying to get funding leading up to his election. I'd been trying to get funding to do the expedition that I did with the International League of Conservation Photographers. And I got some, but I talked to a lot of groups that said, no, you know what? When President Obama gets in, he's just going to stop this anyway. And so we're not going to put any money into it. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound very realistic, but I hope you're right. And the day that he started continuing construction of a border wall, I think it was in 2009, and it was shortly after I had had the exhibit um, of Borderlands Images in the U.S. House, I walked around my neighborhood just in tears, you know, for probably two hours. And I thought, wow, you know, this project that I thought was going to be a year, maybe two, this is going to take the rest of my life. That was a hard recognition, um, but I learned something from that. I learned one that, you know, if you care about something, you don't put a deadline on it. You don't put a timetable on it. And you have to accept that there are going to be some really hard times. And maybe you have to take breaks, but you have to be committed for the long haul. And maybe really importantly, most importantly, look for small victories. And so, yeah, that's what I do now is, is look for small victories and feel like even if there is no victory at the end of a particular part of this project, I can look and say that I did everything I could. And if I didn't do that, I just don't think I could forgive myself, you know. It's so tough to keep track of all the political happenings of this wall, but Krista provided some cliff notes. From 2000, basically when I started the project to 2013, uh, there were some really intense sort of impending risks for the border, starting with the Secure Fence Act and what was happening in terms of construction through the Obama administration. But in 2013, there was a, a bill, an immigration bill, that in order to try to get Republican supporters for that immigration bill, Democrats put in a little sugar for them in the form of 700 miles of border wall, an additional 700 miles of border wall and a doubling of the border patrol force. So John McCain called it all out militarization of the border and every single Democrat in the Senate voted for it. So that was sort of the last major threat until uh, the Trump administration, until President Trump was elected and immediately made border wall his first priority. One way that Krista can respond to this, continuing to tell stories along the border. I'm Mariposa, an hour-long documentary film created by Krista and filmmakers Jenny Nichols and Morgan Heim, tells the story of three characters who are impacted by the construction of the wall, including the butterfly. Why did you, in, in creating the documentary film, like, why did you choose to have one of your main characters be a butterfly? I'd say there were a number of factors that kind of led to it. And we, we didn't start out with the butterfly as a main character, but the two main characters that we started out with both had some connection, strong connection 
to butterflies. So one is the director of the National Butterfly Center, uh, which is a private preserve in Mission, Texas, right on the border, um, and they're fighting the taking of that land through eminent domain to build border wall. And that woman is Mariana Trevino Wright, and she has been really at the center of a fight against border wall for the past two years. So she is one of the main characters, and her job is to take care of butterflies, to try and protect this remnant of habitat for the most biodiverse place for butterflies in the United States. And, you know, like I said, this is that same place where more than 95% of the habitat is gone. So the mission of the Butterfly Center is to save a piece of what's left in collaboration with the National Wildlife Refuge System, which also is saving all of this land along the Rio Grande and some other private preserves. And so Mariana has a, a very close connection with butterflies. The other main character, the other main human character, uh, was pretty much always going to be Zulema Hernandez. And when I met Zulema, I was at a, a protest in 2017 against the building of Border Wall on Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, which was the first target for Border Wall of the Trump administration. For that protest, people walked four miles in the August Texas heat to gather um, at one of one of these real iconic locations in South Texas. It's called La Lomita Chapel. I walked that walk. I walked that whole walk, and it was miserable. And it was it was hot. I had to stop all the time. It was just you know it was one of those things that it was not easy to do, and. With me on that walk, I didn't meet her then, I met her the next day, but Zulema Hernandez was on that walk, and she is 78 years old. She uses a walker to walk. Um, she spent her entire life as a migrant worker, um, so she she's worked hard in her life, and her, you know, her walking four miles in the Texas summer sun is just inspiring. It's incredible. And so I, I saw her... The next day at a, at a follow-up protest, we were all holding hands on the, the Rio Grande levee at Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge. And I think, like I said before, I'm, I'm a real introvert. And so I think that's why I gravitate towards wildlife. And I have to really force myself to, to go up to people and talk to them. I saw her and I thought, I just have to go talk to her. I went up and I just did a little iPhone interview and asked her why she was there. And I went into that conversation with a kind of a presupposition about why she was there protesting this offensive structure. You know, I assumed she, she was doing it because it's, it is racist and it's, and it's, you know, it is, uh, it's an affront to Mexico. What she said was that she was there to protect the butterflies. You know, she was, she only speaks Spanish. She doesn't speak English. And so her daughter was interpreting um, what she was saying, but basically it was all about the wildlife and especially butterflies. I think it's just because it was, it's those two people and their connection to this creature that kind of started me thinking that a butterfly was 
a really good third character to represent the wild world. But the more I thought about it, the more I read about butterflies, the more I learned about Mariana and Zulema, the more it seemed to be something even deeper than that, that this butterfly represents so much that, that is unseen by the rest of the country. And I think humans in general, you know, but, but there is such a symbolism of this delicate creature living in this really hard world. Part of the film is looking at the life cycle of the butterfly and how just minuscule the chances are that, a, that an egg, a butterfly egg, is going to live long enough to become a butterfly. Just a tiny fraction of eggs make it that far. So there's this incredible softness and delicateness of butterflies, but incredible tenacity to be able to to live out a life cycle and to fight so hard for life, you know, <laughs> that they actually make it. Um, so I just thought the more I learned, the more I thought that the butterfly was such a great symbol of tenacity and, and resistance and also a great counterpoint for this really hard, aggressive, ugly structure that, the U.S. federal government has been building on this border for the past 20 years. So it just really just kind of all came together organically. Butterflies are incredible, and these women are so inspiring that that it, it, just, it just seemed natural. And it was really beautiful to get a closer look at that whole process. And um, I actually watched the film with my partner, and he and I both remembered being in elementary school and like I think we both did a similar thing in school where we like watched a you know a caterpillar turn into a butterfly like that was something that we did as part of I don't know some science class and it made me really think about the fact that I don't see I live in New Hampshire I don't see many monarchs anymore like it used to be a butterfly that I saw all the time. And I also, you know, spent more time just kind of sitting in fields and <laughs> surrounded by water, you know, wildflowers as a child and dreaming. I don't know. It Sometimes you need to be reminded of an absence. Yes, exactly. I think that's true. Well, what's the response been like? It's been great from audiences. I mean, actually, I should say that the very first show that we did which I think was probably the most important show for me, was in the Rio Grande Valley with Zulema and her whole family and Mariana and her whole family and all of the folks that were involved in the film and a lot of the community down there, uh, many of whom have been involved in fighting border wall. At the end of that screening, I, I don't know that I've ever been so nervous to hear what was gonna happen after the film ended because you know, these are the people that live that life, and I wanted so much to honor their experience and their just struggle. You know, I mean, I think there's so much grief over what's happening there right now. I, I just wanted so much to be able to give them something that was going to help them. And it was amazing. I mean, they there was a standing ovation. People were just so happy and grateful that this is, was in the world and Mariana and Zulema were so thrilled with it and their families, you know, so I think that 
that right there was probably the most important moment for me. But it's continued, you know, every show that we've had since then, I've had a really great response from people saying that they, they want to help. They want to show it to their friends and, and get it to their communities and where can they get it and, and what can they do to help. And so, you know, ever since the film's come out, I've been spending a lot of time working on the resources to help people get engaged with the film and get engaged with the issue. So now we have on our website, we have a whole section that helps people take action in some, whatever fashion makes sense to them. So they can do a big action and host the film, uh, show it to their community or just show it to their friends and family, or they can do something that's smaller, like rate it on IMDb or tweet about it or just tweet about um, one of the things I put up there was a, a graph that shows how members of Congress, uh, specifically the Senate, voted on the 2018 and 2019 budgets that contained border wall funding. So people can go there, look up their senator, and see whether they voted for border wall funding. And if they didn't, it's got, or if they did, well, either way, you know, however they voted, their social media handles are right next to their voting record. And they can go tweet them and, and tell them what they think about them voting for border wall. And so there's a whole section for for people who want to get engaged with the issue. There are ways for people to get engaged with the film. I'm hoping that, that you know, it just sort of takes on a life of its own. I like that there is a sense of, like, there being something that viewers can do. Because you watch the film and you see you know, land being taken away by eminent domain, and it can feel like there's, you know, everyone's kind of powerless in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really hard because sometimes, you know, it's what we were talking about before. Sometimes I personally feel powerless and I have to talk myself into the idea that I really believe, but I, I lose sight of it sometimes, but I really believe that we do each have power. And I, you know, one of the things I, I do on the website is I, I actually look at the tea party. And even though I am on the opposite side of the political spectrum from that movement, those were people that they saw the nation going in a direction they, they didn't like, you know, they saw progress from my perspective, but they saw it going in a direction they didn't like. And instead of saying, we're powerless, we can't do anything, they went to their members of Congress and started harassing them and saying, we're going to vote you out if you don't start doing what we want. And they harassed them at public meetings and they called and they wrote letters and they, they got on the news and they got media magnets to support them. And they now control the Senate, they control the White House, they control increasingly the Supreme Court, and they were a fringe movement. So think what we could do as the majority of people in this country if we all just believed that speaking up mattered. I, I believe it 100%. And so, you know, I, I hope that we can all start believing in that more because this is a democracy and the democracy requires the participation not just at election time, but all the time 
of every member. Yeah, and thinking about that cumulative change that can that can happen, it also makes me think about the film and Mariana talking about I I think when she started when they started working on the butterfly preserve they've just grown the number of species and the number of plants that need to be there. And like, you can do a lot with like a species that you can kind of extrapolate that to there being a possibility for, for political change as well. Yeah. I think that's a great metaphor. I mean, yeah, they went from a, from an onion field that was, was so degraded that plants couldn't even grow because of all the pesticides and herbicides and plowing to this, just paradise of butterflies and it is it's plant by plant day by day plant by plant get to where you need to be Learn more about I Am Mariposa and see if there's a screening near you by going to the link in our show notes. I'll also link Krista's portfolio site, kristaschleiler.com. Thank you to Krista for educating me and taking the time to talk. You have so many years of experience and I gotta say I look up to you a bit. I learned so much and I hope you all did too. Thank you to our sponsors, Merrill, Rooted, and Third Love. As always, links and codes are linked in our show notes. Learn more about She Explorers by heading to our website, she-explorers.com, and support the show by leaving us a review wherever you listen and joining the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. With over 5,000 members, it's an encouraging place to share your outdoor endeavors, projects, and to connect with previous guests of the show. Music is by Josh Woodward, Lee Rosevere, Kay Angle, and Maiden. Until next week, have fun out there.